Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. That is our um, scripture memorization. We don't want to uh, skip over this because we're going to add one more verse to that. And that verse is going to be verse 10. So if you'll all stand with me, if you're able to stand, please stand with me. And um, today we're going to read together uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And then we're going to add verse 10 as well. So um, we're not going to pressure you into doing this without the help of the overhead projection. So uh, you can do that. We're reading this, of course, in the King James Version. Uh, verses uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And we're going to say the reference and then the verses themselves. So say with me, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's do that one more time. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now let's add verse 10. Let's say Ephesians 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So next week we'll do all three verses together and hopefully have them all memorized together as well. While you're standing, we're going to do our reading for our study this morning, which is found in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Our study will be in verses 1 through 12, but our reading for today is verses 1 through 6. So join me and read with me again in Acts 20, verses 1 through 6, beginning with verse 1. And let's read together. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derba, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. We were a little little quiet there, but I heard some of you reading those names in verse 4. That was good. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We bless you for this day and this hour now to come and to study your word grow in the grace and knowledge of your word. We ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to stay awake and aware of all that we have before us today from this passage and the passage as well to follow. We ask, Lord God, that it will encourage us to live our lives in the love of Christ and with the love that we are to have for your church. We thank you for it, and we bless you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Y'all may be seated. 
If you were asked what the most significant and necessary qualities of a minister of Jesus Christ were, what would your answer be? Now again, I want to make it clear what the question is. If you were asked what the most significant and necessary qualities of a minister of Jesus Christ were, what would your answer be? Now, you might mention immediately the skill of preaching and teaching. Or you could mention the qualities of boldness and godliness as foundational. The ability to shepherd God's flock, to oversee the church's concerns wisely, and the ability to work with and communicate with people you would probably consider as crucial needs. But behind all of those qualities, would you have mentioned love? Love for the Lord, love for the truth, and love for the church. Would it have been a consideration that a noble leader in the church of Jesus Christ would have such love flowing from devotion to Christ and the word of God toward the people of God? You see, in the history of the church, there have always been pastors and ministers who sacrificed in life, in imprisonment, and even in death for the sake of the church. And it was love for the church that compelled them to take those risks. Last week I mentioned to you a godly pastor and preacher whose name is Robert Murray McShane. But I have to make some corrections here, and I have to kind of preface this because I I think uh, certainly another quality that we want to have is one of of honesty and integrity, and I want to make sure that what I say to you has been researched well and proper. But I had mentioned to you about the Welsh Revival of 1901 and mentioned Robert Murray McShane's uh, involvement in that particular revival. Well... Uh, as I had uh, taken that from a source that I consider to have been reliable, I, I did it very quickly because I wanted to end with that thought last week. And, I, and, and, and truly, in the Welsh Revival, those things that I mentioned happened. In other words, the, the, the pubs and the, and the taverns did close down. But uh, I, all week, it, it kept bothering me. Something's not right about, about that particular, about those facts. I don't want the facts to be right. And there was a person named Robert Murray McShane, but he was Scottish and not Welsh. And he lived many, many years before the Welsh Revival. So to be accurate, to, uh, it, it needs to be stated that the Welsh Revival itself was in 1904. And was in fact highlighted by the preaching of a person named Evan Roberts. So it's easy that somebody who had thought about the word Robert or the name Robert maybe throw, thrown it in there. But it was actually Evan Roberts, and there were many preachers at that time. But what did happen, and what I did mention did happen. In other words, that the impact of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not about, uh, you know, parading against the, the pubs and the taverns, but just the preaching and the teaching of the word of God changed the life of the people in Wales. So, just wanted to make that correction for you. But again, the results were the same, as I said. Nonetheless... The person named Robert Murray Machane, he preached many years earlier in Scotland, and he was an equally effective revivalist in his homeland. And I wanted to mention him again today because, you see, he was a a young man uh, when he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ 
but he was a young man when he went home to be with the Lord. He died when he was 29 years old. But it was ill health, but in his ill health, it would not keep him from his loving service to the church. And there are so many stories that are written about his preaching. And, and uh, one in particular that, that really caught my attention was about a person who later became a Scottish evangelist and had heard this man preach and change his life. That as he looked at the face of Robert Murray McShane, he said, when I saw him, I could see eternity stamped upon his brow. But he went on to talk about how much his preaching was, 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 was revealing the fact that this person truly loved the church and he loved the people of God, but he also loved those who were lost and needed Christ. And so the, these are the kind of examples that, that we need to see in, in, in people that are ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. Law for the church motivated Charles Spurgeon to speak out against the modernism of his day. There was a controversy going on in that time within the church called the downgrade controversy. They were downgrading the, the, the truth of the gospel, even in the, in the late 1800s, which is when Charles Spurgeon preached. And that downgrade, that modernism had crept into the evangelical church. And Spurgeon was criticized sharply for his stand. And he took a strong stand against this, uh, this modernism. And many who were close to him deserted him because of it. And while he didn't back down from his stand, the stress of that controversy helped to hasten his death at the age of 57. And I'm just giving you examples of people who love the church so much, they would take that stand even to the point of their death. And yet no finite man ever loved the church more than the Apostle Paul. No finite man. I say that because Jesus, of course, would love the church more than all. But no finite man would ever love the church more than the Apostle Paul. And we know that he expressed that love often in his letters to his churches that he wrote. Uh, for example, to the Philippians, he wrote in, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 of, of the book of Philippians. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my request for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Now that's the key phrase of his love for the church. He says, I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers uh, with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. He would write to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2 and say a very simple statement in in saying you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You're our letter written in our hearts. Later on in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 3 he says, uh, I do not say uh, this to condemn for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, to that church, he says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. These are just small examples of uh, uh, giving us a little bit of a picture of the heart of the Apostle Paul for the church. 
But Paul didn't just love the church with word or with tongue, but he loved the church in deed and in truth. And the sacrifice that Paul made for the church lived out the very words of Jesus. When Jesus said in John fifteen thirteen, greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And the Apostle Paul would eventually do this. He would lay down his life for, for the church. And this brings us to where we are now with, with Paul in our text. This faithful minister was, was considering, you see, the church above all with his purposes and with his plans. Every purpose and every plan that Paul made, that which we've talked about over the last two or three weeks, every purpose and plan that Paul made was always focused around the church. It was always focused around the people of God. And the uproar and the riot in Ephesus was an attack primarily directed toward Paul, but it involved other believers. If you remember, Gaius and Aristarchus were arrested. And I'm sure that that burdened Paul. So, so Paul sensed that if he continued in Ephesus, he would endanger all the believers there. And, and you see how he was thinking first and foremost of the church. So what is it that Paul does? He, he reaches out in calling them together to embrace them and to leave them to undertake a ministry in Europe. He reaches out to them. This is showing the love of Christ in Paul's heart for the church. It is showing his love for the people of God. He reaches out to embrace them. This morning I've called this message, Reaching Out and Raising Up. And we see these two actions in this whole passage of chapter uh, 20, verses 1 through 12. But he begins with him reaching out. And if you go back to verses 1 to 3 for just a moment, let's read it again. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and he stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. You know, it obviously wasn't an easy road that Paul was on. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't so easy for him to have to just get up and pack up and, and take off and go on, on these adventures. And we, we can't call them merry adventures. Oh, he just loved, you know, going here and going, love to travel. Some of us may love to travel. I don't love to travel, but maybe you do. But uh, can you imagine having to travel in the conditions that Paul had to, to, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to others? I mean, it was a, it was not an easy road. I mean, not only was he leaving the people that he loved and cared for, he got very attached to the people in Ephesus. And I'm sure uh, he was loved and cared for as well by them. But, but there were other problems that were awaiting him in Greece. Uh, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of details, but we're left to look at what Paul wrote to the churches to get an idea. If we start looking at what Paul was writing to the churches, we get an idea of what he went through. I mean, take for instance that, that it is on this leg of his trip to Macedonia that Paul actually writes his second letter to the church of Corinth. And in that writing of that letter, he says these things, Second Corinthians 7, verse 5. He says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Something that I appreciate so much about the Apostle Paul is that Paul was honest about his life, honest about his struggles, honest about the pains and hurts and struggles that he went through. You see, today we have people that tell you, listen, we ought not to make any kind of negative confessions whatsoever. Negative, positive, well, I don't know, I don't see that in the Scriptures. But, I, you know, this is what they say. Don't be speaking negative. Paul isn't so much speaking ne- negative, he's speaking truth. 
And we need to understand that. And I tell you what, I respect Paul for doing what he did more than some guys do what they do just for the sake of money. But Paul was honest. And he was saying, we, were, we had no rest. We were troubled on every side. But Paul would always also give the comfort of, of what's happening. Notice as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, go back a few pages to verses 8 through 15. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side. You're not crushed. That's the whole reality. We were hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed. I'm going to lie to you about that. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says, always carrying about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. Speaking to the church. He said, death is working in us. We're going every place, you know, to bring the gospel. But, hey, life is coming to you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that we, that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and we, and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. We will go through these things so that we can together share in the blessings of Christ. Some of us unto death, you unto life. That was the heart of Paul. But he was honest to the people. So now he adds this consolation. Look at the next verse, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction. I want you to notice that if you go back to a list that we read also in 2 Corinthians, you know, of, of Paul get, being shipwrecked and beaten, you know, five times with, with a rod and, 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 uh, and, and just all of the struggles that Paul went through, the perils of his countrymen, the perils of, 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 of the Gentiles and all of that. This is what he calls light affliction. Light affliction. You know, sometimes even today, you know, somebody will say, you know, somebody might not say any, say something to us that's not very nice. And, oh, we come crying. Oh, they said this to us. Hey, don't worry about it. Light affliction. Making it sound like it's heavy affliction. Read what Paul went through. That's, you know, to us, that's heavy affliction. But he says, that's light affliction. Why? Look at the perspective. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. Temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, it's all in perspective. What are you looking at? If you're looking at the things of the world and you're getting scared by that, don't, don't look at those things. Start looking at Jesus. Start looking at the kingdom. Start looking at the Word of God. Start looking at the things that are eternal, not the things that are temporal. As I said, the Scottish evangelist said of Robert Murray McShane, I saw eternity stamped upon his brow. We have to start looking at the things that God has promised us are real and true and will come to pass because God's Word comes to pass. Even in the midst of our, trump, of our trials and our tribulations and temptations in this life. But what do we learn of Paul? 
in this. We learn that he never blew his own horn. He never blew his own horn. He honored Christ and Christ alone. He didn't serve by concentrating on building himself up by, re, you know, thinking of just of himself. He didn't serve by concentrating on building himself up, but by reaching out and evangelizing people for Christ and exhorting them in the faith. Now, as for the plot to kill him that we read about, the Jews in Corinth never got over Gallio's judgment against them. You can go back to chapter 18 and read about that. But uh, So they probably waited over the years for an opportunity to get back at Paul. So they're, they're going to either throw him overboard from the ship or kill, kill him someplace on the dock. Nevertheless, Paul, in finding out about this, he, he changed his plans. And he fled back to Macedonia. But, but it, gives us a, it gives us an idea, you see, how flexible we have to be with the plans that God makes for us. We might have plans to go this direction, and you know, we may go on and, dis- and discover that that's what God wants for us. But along the way, we may discover that there might be a little blip in the, you know, on the screen there. And here was a blip for, for Paul. He had to take a, a change of direction. Persecution or even death was awaiting him that uh, he wasn't ready for, <laughs> and and went in a different way. But, but nonetheless, these were the things that he taught the church and he taught his leaders that they needed to be prepared for. In Philippians chapter one verse twenty nine, Paul says, "For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe him or in him, but also to suffer for his sake." He's not sugarcoating anything. It isn't just for us to believe in Christ. We're going to suffer for His sake. And I tell you this, that in our day and time, we are going to suffer more for the sake of Christ than we ever have before. Because the world has drastically changed its opinions about Christianity, drastically changed its opinions about Christ, and certainly about the church. So are we going to take the stand to trust in what God has said? Are we going to become weak and, and, and you know, go about with every change of, uh, in wind of doctrine? I'm not going to change. I believe what every word, every word that God has said in His Word. I believe every word. I'm going to stay there. People don't like it. Hey, I'm not going to change. Will you? Paul didn't change. The apostles didn't change. Spurgeon didn't change. We don't change. This is God's word. Listen to what he says to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice something. Not only in what he said to the Philippians, not only to believe him, but we're going to suffer for his sake. But even what he says to Paul, uh, uh, to Timothy here, all who desire to live godly. You see, it's a matter of coming to Christ. Our lives have to change. So all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That sounds like today. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through, the, uh, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Then he gives us that great statement of, of the Scriptures. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, which literally means all, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Paul has prepared his leaders, Paul has prepared the church, that these things are going to happen. Paul is going through them as well. 
Now it's also significant that Paul was traveling with, with a larger entourage than he normally did. And there's good reason. As we look at verses 4 through 6, it says, And so Peter of, of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derba and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. And notice, now Luke inserts himself by saying, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, after the days of the Passover, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So, we're getting a little bit of Paul's travel log and his companions here. But these traveling companions of Paul were, were certainly representatives uh, from other churches who had sent money with Paul to Jerusalem. And they were also present as ambassadors from the churches Paul ha- uh, has founded among the Gentiles. And were there to vouch for Paul's good stewardship in regard to the collection destined for Jerusalem. And that, that's a very wise thing, of course, when it deals with the collections. And once again, then, as I said before, Luke joins them in Philippi, and they take a ship to uh, Troas, which is about 150 miles that they traveled. And I thought I'd insert here very quickly a, a little bit of the uh, of the uh, travel log of Paul over 16 years of ministry. Uh, we're told that. Uh, uh, in 16 years of ministry, he ministered in a in an area of uh, about 1,500, uh, 1,500 square miles. He traveled 5,580 miles land, 6,770 miles by sea, and combined he traveled 12,350 miles. That's that's an incredible uh, amount of of traveling uh, in in that day and in that time. And again, this all because of Paul's love for the church. Well, on Paul's second missionary journey, it only took two days to travel this distance, as we saw back in Acts 16, verse 11. But here, it took five days, which tells us the winds must have been blowing against them. Which is kind of, there's a little spiritual thing there, too, for us. You know, sometimes when the spiritual winds or the, or the winds blow hard against us, sometimes the worldly winds blow against us, it might take us a little longer to get through those winds. But nonetheless, God said, I'll still be with you. So we had not to worry, and certainly Paul knew that God was with them. And another thought that we need to consider is that Paul was constantly making disciples and attaching them to himself, that he might grow them in the Lord. So with these men that were accompanying him, I can, I can just know in all, with all my heart that Paul spent a lot of time speaking to them about the Lord and about the Word and, and encouraging them in, in the love of Christ. But, but this is exactly what the Lord Jesus uh, commanded all of us to do. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus said, Go make disciples. Paul decided, I'm going to do what Jesus said. So all these men traveling with Paul were being discipled as well by this apostle. But he also tells Timothy in his second letter, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he says, And the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Keep committing to faithful people the word of God that others will hear from them. And that word continues. You see, from Paul to Timothy, that word went to others, that went to others, that went to others, that eventually, somewhere down the line, got to us. And that's a good thing to know how God maintains and keeps his word. 
But uh, Paul wasn't able to make it to Jerusalem for Passover. That was a desire of his, but he, he didn't make it. So his goal was now to, to arrive there by Pentecost, which would have been 50 days later. Now jump down to verse 16, just so you can see this, so you'll know that this was, was the kind of plan changing that he made. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So plans change, you become flexible to these changes as God gives you uh, his directions and his plans. So getting back now to our timeline, we find that Paul and his companions are in Troas now. Uh, having been joined by Titus as well. We know that from the scriptures as well as bringing Luke and Timothy and Titus back by Paul's side. And these were very special and precious people to Paul. So Paul uh, is, is very thankful to have, have these men with him again. So now in verses 7 through 12, it says, Now in the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. By the way, Luke, being a doctor, a physician, writes and uses a technical term for taking up or taking up dead. It's the word corpse. (laughs) So it lets us know that he died. But Paul went down, it says, fell on him and embracing him, said, do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had uh, broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted, which means they were a whole lot comforted in seeing what had happened to Eutychus. But, oh, by the way, I I mentioned Titus, and I don't want to forget how we know about Titus joining him. But uh, he's joined uh, them by the record of his arrival in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, very quickly, 2 Corinthians 7, 6. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So we see Titus and Timothy and Luke now back together with with Paul. Now, there are a few things to note in verse 7. First of all, we're given a description of a local church service in Troas. What does it tell us? It tells us that they met on the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. They met on the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week, which is called the Sabbath. That's significant here. As a matter of fact, Paul, in writing in his first letter to the Corinthian church, he said in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also, or you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Many, many years later, by the way, it's in Revelation chapter 1, but uh, John speaks of on the first day of the week when he sees uh, that um, vision of the, of the Spirit there on, on Patmos. So, again, that's a very significant thing that it talks about the first day of the week. That day would come to be called the Lord's Day because on it the Lord Jesus arose from the dead. So 
See, one, one, one thought that uh, one commentator had was, you know, when you think about it, Jesus arose on, on the first day of the week, but on the seventh day he was still dead. And, and that uh, kind of gives us a little bit of a symbolic picture of, of, you know, going from death to life in this new covenant of Christ. So, the Lord Jesus has arisen from the dead on the first day of the week, so it was also the day that they broke bread. In other words, it signifies that they, the church participated in the Lord's Supper on that day. And if you want to be even more specific, we, we could be more specific even here in this particular passage in Acts, because we see that they probably were meeting on Sunday night of the first day of the week, since everyone worked on Sunday. And that's, uh, that was a common thing even in, in, in those uh, particular areas. That, that thought adds to the drama of this passage. Because, because we have to understand what, what's happening. First day of the week, it's at night though. There's, there's the breaking of bread. And then there's, there's the preaching of the word. We find that Paul is preaching a good while. If they started at, at sundown, which was about 6 p.m., he preached till midnight, it tells us. That gives us six hours of, of time spent in the church. There were candles that were lit because they didn't have electricity like we do. They didn't have fans and coolers and, and all kinds of stuff. So they're all crowded into this house that had windowsills going up to even to a third level. So can you see the, the situation here? It was a hot room. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the, in, the, in the upper room where they were gathered together. So in a situation like that, you'd probably want to sit... You probably want to sit next to a window or for ventilation, right? Or maybe not. Maybe not. <clears throat> maybe this was the inspiration for that song in the sill of the night. That was a stretch. Verse 9, and in a window sat... A certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. You know, it's interesting that, that uh, Eutychus' name literally means fortunate. But I'll tell you what he was fortunate about. It was fortunate that Paul was there. <laughs> Sure. But the phrase young man that's used in verse 12 implies that he was a servant. And he worked. And worked long hours, I'm sure. And he was quite tired from having worked all day. And still, he was there to hear Paul. Isn't that a wonderful thing? No matter how long he worked, he was there to hear Paul. So you really can't fault him for what happened. I mean, we, we can't be too hard on Eutychus, and we can't be too hard on Paul either. That's coming from me. I mean, you know, we can't be too hard on the preacher. I mean, okay, so he preached almost six hours, but uh, he was preaching a farewell sermon. I mean, how many of you would stay and, pre- and hear me preach till midnight? No, don't raise your hand, please. please. <laughs> hold, hold your hands down, you know. Keep from raising them. Because, uh, you know, don't. But understand that Paul was preaching a farewell sermon, and, and he had a great deal to tell them for their own good. And we might want to ask the question, though, what keeps me awake? What keeps me awake? Because, you see, some Christians slumber through only a one-hour sermon. 
Amen, brother. Amen. And the fact is, you know, you slumber in in a one-hour sermon, even in comfortable conditions. And yet, uh, you may just stay awake during those early morning fishing trips. Lengthy sporting events and concerts. Even late night TV specials. Something to think about. What keeps me awake? Charles Spurgeon once said this. I love this. He said, remember, if we go to sleep during the sermon and die, there are no apostles to restore us. (laughs) Keep that in mind. Keep it in mind. No apostles. So as Paul had reached out with love to embrace the church in Ephesus, to bid them farewell, he now raised up Eutychus with the same kind of love and care. You see, he reached out and he raised up. He reached out and he raised up. You know, we're told that he fell upon the boy and embraced him too. There's something very similar to that incident in the Old Testament. Two two incidents actually. One with Elijah the prophet who fell upon the son of the widow from Zarephath. And then in Second Kings, that was in First Kings, in Second Kings, in the story of Elisha with the Shunammite widow's son, did the same thing. Paul does the same thing that they did. He fell upon him, almost face to face, hand to hand, but he embraced him. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Verse 10, but Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, and, and you know, I, I love this part of it. You know, he, he does this, and he gets up, and he goes back in, and they sit down to eat. So simple. Not taking any of the credit. Not taking the glory. And talked a long while. Paul went back to talking. Even till daybreak. That's another six hours. And then he departed. And they brought the young man alive and they were not a little comforted. You see what a beautiful picture we see in the person of the Apostle Paul. A person who loved the church with all his heart. We see here, first of all, a picture of compassion. A picture of compassion. The minister of Jesus Christ needs to have compassion. Secondly, we see a picture of determination. A determination to help the young man. And thirdly, we see a picture of instrumentation. In other words, providing the means as an instrument for the power of God's life to flow through him into the boy. A picture of compassion, determination, and instrumentation. You see, symbolically, every believer should throw himself upon the lost of the world to impart the life of God to them. It's a beautiful picture. Of falling upon the lost world, that they would know the life of Christ. But it's something that we learn from Jesus. Jesus said in John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. It's our calling to do this. 
It's our calling to seek and to save that which is lost. As Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And I believe it is a great example for us to follow that as a brother or sister in the Lord is going through tough times. You know, I mean, their, wife, their walk might be just as lifeless as Utica's body on the ground. It may even be dead. Don't rebuke them, mock them, kick them around, embrace them, love them, see life come back into them. That's what some people need. They need the love of Christ shown to them. When the time comes, then can come the gentle rebuke or the gentle teaching or the gentle exhortation, but Some people just don't need to be beaten over the head. You know, it's as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. He said, and above all things, have fervent love. The word fervent there speaks literally of a fire. Have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, and by the way, the word minister literally means to serve. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. How has God gifted you to serve? That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the heart attitude that we're to have. But please, don't, please understand that there, there are times when rebuke needs to happen. And there are many times when we've seen Paul rebuke either the church or, or hypocrites, as it were. So there's a time and a place for everything. This is a time for us to be discerning about the nature and the character of compassionate love. As we go on, the talking that took place after the incident with Eutychus was primarily in the form of conversation in fellowship. Paul didn't know if he would ever see these people again, and he wanted to share with them as much as he could about Jesus and to build them up in the faith. So that church in Troas, with, with, with the Ephesians and all that, that, from before when he embraced them then, and then later on in Troas as he embraces Eutychus, again shows us that the love that Paul had for the church is central in his life. But for us, it is central to this whole chapter. And that's why I began with that thought about the love of God and the servant of God. And in the minister of God. Because in this chapter, we're going to see especially how Paul loves the church. So the love that Paul had for the church is central to the whole chapter, but especially for our understanding of such a devoted servant and follower of Jesus Christ, who himself understood God's unfathomable, unfathomable love. And Paul did understand it. And Paul did express it in so many beautiful ways in the, in the Scriptures.
Take for example, what he says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. We know this as the, as the, as the passage dealing with the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit, Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And we need to understand that when Paul wrote this, he was saying the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. The singular fruit of the Spirit is love that holds together all the other characteristics of that fruit. It says one person said one time, if you take a, a, a beautiful peach, that, that fruit, you know, I, w- I wish I wasn't allergic to peaches. I'm allergic to peaches. I would love to just bite into a big peach. All over me because it, you know, I, used to, I used to like them until I got, I, I, you know, I, I'm allergic to them. I, I take a peach, I'm like, you know. I would love it, but, but anyway, you know, that, that, that peach, you know, is made up of, you know, it's got that big seed, you know, and then inside the seed, of course, is that, that which is going to grow out into either the plant or the fruit itself. But, but then that seed is covered by that luscious, luscious, juicy fruit. Huh. But, it is surrounded by that fuzzy exterior. That's the love that holds it all together. Love holds all the characteristics of God's Spirit together for us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All that is held together by God's love. We can't have joy without the love of God. We can't have peace without the love of God. We can't have long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and even self-control without the love of God. So Paul understood the love of God. But how much greater do we understand it when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 and he says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, he says, never fails. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they'll fail. Whether there are tongues, they'll cease. Whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away and so on. Until you get to verse 13 when he says, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul understood what love was all about. And we could see in the Apostle Paul, his love for the Lord, his love for the truth, and his love for the church. Do we have that love for the church of Jesus Christ? For the true body of Christ? For those who have been washed by the blood of Christ? For those who have been changed from death into life? From darkness into light? From despair into the love of Christ? Shall we ask the Lord today? Lord, Let us have that kind of love for one another, for you, and for your truth. Shall we pray?